If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome once again to Bradbury 100. Now on Facebook, there's a very nice group called Science Fiction Book Club. And on there, occasionally, they have questions and answers about famous writers. And I was asked if I would answer some questions about Ray Bradbury. And I said yes, of course. And if you're a member of that group, you'll be able to read the written version of my answers on the Facebook group. And indeed, you could join the Facebook group if you're not a member already. Just search for Science Fiction Book Club or look for the link in my show notes for this very podcast. But I thought it would also be interesting to record these for the podcast because there are some very good questions here and some of them are questions that I've never been asked before. So I had to do a bit of deep thinking and occasionally look some things up in order to give some decent answers. Now the questions were sent in by members of the science fiction book group and in the written version I think you will see the name of the person who sent in the question appears there alongside the question. But for the podcast, I'm going to leave the names out of it. Uh, but I thought just to liven things up a bit, uh, I should probably have some kind of co-host. So I thought I'd recruit actually a team of robots to ask the questions of me. So uh, here are my robots. Hi, robots. Hi, Hi Phil. So there they are. I'm going to use these voices, these AI voices, to read the questions, and then I'll provide the answers. So here's the first question. Do you know if Bradbury was ultimately happy with the Ray Bradbury Theatre TV program? His stories are so reliant on theme, atmosphere, and nostalgia, which are all so hard to translate to a short television program. Yes, on the whole, Ray was generally very happy with Ray Bradbury Theatre, and it was because he had a lot of input into it. He, I mean, he was named as an executive producer, so he was a kind of a co-owner of the entire thing. But it also meant that he was able to decide the stories that would be represented, he was able to write the scripts himself, and have some say in the casting and the re-editing of episodes and that kind of thing. So he was consulted throughout the production process. There were some instances where things didn't work out the way he would have liked, and this resulted in episodes which he referred to as, and I quote, clunkers. <laughs> and he specifically named the episode The Dwarf as one that he thought was a clunker, so he wasn't happy with that one. And at first, he wasn't too happy with what they did with Black Ferris. Uh, that's the story which is the kind of the precursor to Something Wicked This Way Comes. 
Now, the end result, the end product, I think is a pretty decent episode. But when Ray saw the first cut of the episode, uh, he felt that things needed to be tightened up quite a bit. But with his input, changes were made and, you know, it was it was fixed up. One peculiar thing about Ray Bradbury Theatre is that not one of the episodes was filmed in the US. Uh, They started off in Canada, and then after a couple of years, the show started touring the world, looking for, frankly, cheap places to make episodes. So they shot in the UK, in France, in New Zealand, and in Canada. And uh, there were plans to film in Germany as well, but that never came off. And the fact that the show wasn't in the US could be a little bit frustrating for Ray because he was quite distant from the production process. And we're talking here about the late 1980s and early 1990s. So before we had any proper internet and uh, Ray would keep in touch with the production team, mostly by fax. (laughs) Who remembers fax machines? But that's what Ray had to rely on. Now, everything changed quite substantially on Ray Bradbury Theatre when a guy called Tom Cotter came on board as a producer and he became Ray's eyes and ears. So as the production travelled around from Canada to France to New Zealand, he was the one who was a constant presence. So they would use local production crews, local directors, but Tom would travel and uh, oversee the, the entire Um, process. And he also made sure that each script would be filmable wherever it was that they were producing that particular episode. Because of that, because there was this quality control person in charge of it, Tom Cotter, um, things rarely went wrong in the planning. They more often went wrong in the shooting. And Ray wouldn't know about this until he received the first cut of each episode. And they were sent to him on videotape. Again, there was no broadband, so there was no way of sharing a file or anything like that. And of course, even if there were, Ray wasn't interested in computers, so he would have had no part of that. But they did send him tapes. So he would view the tapes and then he would prepare his notes. He would fax them to Tom Cotter off in New Zealand or wherever they happened to be uh, with suggestions for changes. And so there was an inevitable delay in this whole process. And so fixing anything would be a very costly process because it would potentially require reshoots. So what Ray always did was he would be mindful of the expense and where possible, he would make suggestions of things that could be fixed in the edit so that they could make a change, but without doing reshoots. But occasionally, in the very worst cases, the only way to solve a problem would be to get the crew back in and to reshoot. Phil, did Bradbury write other stage plays in addition to Leviathan 99? And if so, are they available in a single collection? Thanks. The answer to this is yes, Ray wrote a lot of stage plays. Uh, Most of them are one-act plays based on his stories. And if you want a single collection of these, just one book, the closest you'll find is the book called Ray Bradbury on Stage, a Crestomathy of his plays, or Crestomathy. I've no idea how to pronounce that word. I don't even know what it means, 
but it's some fancy word <laughs> that Ray or somebody else put in the title. So Ray Bradbury on stage. It's essentially made up of two earlier collections of plays that have been sort of bolted together. But if you're interested in longer works, full-length plays, he did adaptations of The Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451, Dandelion Wine, and Something Wicked This Way Comes. And all of these are obtainable from the company called Dramatic Publishing, each one of them in a separate book. So if you simply go to dramaticpublishing.com and search for Bradbury, you'll find all of them on there. Fahrenheit 451 is arguably Ray's best play, but it is different to the book. And this isn't a problem for me, but some people want the play to be the same as the book. So they watch the play and they say, hey, they've changed things. Well, no, they haven't changed things. Ray changed things because when he wrote the play, he didn't simply translate the book. He relived the story. Okay, he he essentially wrote the story as he thought it should be now at the moment of writing the play. So it is different, um, but it's very good nonetheless. Uh, Dandelion Wine uh, is another one where he made changes from the book, but in this case he did it for it to make sense, because Dandelion Wine, the book, is really a rambling collection of short stories. You know, it presents itself as a novel, but it's not a novel. It's one of these um, lashed-together collections made to look like a novel, what Ray would call a half-cousin to a novel. So when he wrote the play for Dandelion Wine, he introduced a new character, a, a kind of a visitor to Greentown. And the presence of this visitor ties all of the stories together so that there is a continuous, coherent uh, plot running through it. And then there's a twist at the end, which is a very good twist. So Dandelion Wine is another one of Ray's very best plays, but it has these differences from the book. Uh, if you want something that is identical to the book, the best you'll find would be The Martian Chronicles or Something Wicked This Way Comes. The Martian Chronicles is really very, very similar to the book, but just condensed, because obviously a book takes, what, 10, 12 hours to read, and the play is only going to be about an hour and a half, so he's condensed everything down. Um, something Wicked This Way Comes, he had to do the same thing again, but stayed very, very close to the book. So if it's important to you that the play be the same as the book, those are the ones to look for. Am I right in my recollection that Bradbury withdrew way up in the air, the story about racism in the US, from later editions of The Martian Chronicles? If this is true, was it really because he thought it was no longer relevant? I hope it's not true, as it would mean that he missed one of the profound messages of his own story, that racism is more than just discrimination, preconceived ideas or plain dislike, but about entitlement, systematic or embedded systems and aggression or violence. It is true that Ray withdrew way in the middle of the air from the Martian Chronicles. It was his doing. Uh, he wasn't forced into it. It wasn't ripped out by editors or anything like that. Uh, and yes, he did it because he thought the story was no longer relevant. But possibly not in the way that you're thinking. Now, I know the questioner didn't say this, but I'll say this because some people think he took it out of the book because it has some racist characters in it and the racist characters speak 
racist language. So some people think, oh, that wouldn't wash today. That's why Ray's taken it out of the book. But that would be wrong because that's not what actually happened. For anyone who isn't familiar with it, I suppose we should say that Way in the Middle of the Air has this very simple conceit that all of the black folks in the US are heading off to Mars to get away from bigotry. Okay, it's a very <laughs> stated in that those very bald terms, it sounds ridiculous, but it is actually a very stirring story when you read about these crowds of people converging on the rocket field in order to go off to Mars because they're basically saying, we've had enough of this. Uh, it, it's a very powerful moment in the story. By the mid-70s, Ray thought that real life had overtaken this story because of something else. He believed that the car, the automobile, had actually, in real life, enabled black people to escape from oppression. Uh, he basically believed that because of the car, people had been able to move away from the most toxically racist areas, obviously in the south of the US, and to settle elsewhere. So whether it be Chicago or New York or whatever. Now, the great irony here is that Ray was very anti-car because so many people get killed by cars every year. He considered the car to be one of the worst inventions of humankind. But here he is recognising or believing that the car brought great freedom. So he saw the car as a great social liberator, despite the fact that it's also a deadly weapon. Now, of course, he's overstating the impact of cheap cars because uh, this, this is what Ray tends to do. Ray tends to be very poetic when he's talking about technology and he's not necessarily factually accurate in what he says. So when he says that the car enabled people to escape from oppression, he's not literally saying that if you examine the economics of it, that will be your conclusion. He's saying that that's how it feels to him. Um, and of course, he's overlooking the fact that poor people, the very poorest people, couldn't even afford a car. So how are they going to escape from their, their bad lot in life? But he did truly believe that the car had brought about a, a, an exodus which was comparable to what he showed in the story. In the story, the exodus is people get in rockets and go to Mars. He believed in real life. People got in cars and went to Chicago or New York or wherever. So those were Ray's reasons for taking the story out of the Martian Chronicles. It's a bit odd in many ways because some of the other stories in the Martian Chronicles that feel a bit dated are still in there. But the stories that feel dated tend to feel dated because of the technology or because of the way he has represented the aliens, the Martians. And I think Way in the Middle of the Air is the only story where he felt that human beings on the Earth as we know it were being represented in a highly unrealistic way. So for him, that story came out. I've been to Epcot and I've ridden the spaceship Earth ride. What drove Bradbury to develop the storyline for this? Well, the answer to this, as far as I know, is very simple. Ray was commissioned to do it. <laughs> he became personal friends with Walt Disney, 
And the story is that he was out shopping one day, Ray was out shopping one day, and he bumped into Walt Disney. And there was this kind of, hey, you're Walt Disney, hey, you're Ray Bradbury thing going on. Uh, and it became apparent uh, when they got to talking, they they went out to dinner and, and you know, met up in, in various other ways. It became apparent that Ray believed in a very heartfelt way that Disneyland was some kind of perfect model of how real towns should be built. So it was natural after that that Disney would get Ray involved in something like Epcot. The idea for Epcot, especially in its original conception, was that it would be uh, a kind of a city of the future. And the original intention was that it would be a place where people would live. It would be an actual community. Now, of course, that changed over time, especially after uh, Walt Disney's death. But since the original concept was to come up with something which was a futuristic place, but also have it as a visitor attraction, Bradbury seemed a logical person to uh, invite in to, to do the conceptual work for it. And prior to this, in the early 1960s, Ray had contributed ideas and scripts to World's Fairs. So he had some experience of devising and scripting these visitor attractions. And he carried on with this line of work, incidentally, uh, contributing scripts and ideas to a number of rides, including one in Disneyland Paris. Bradbury chose his own epitaph, author of Fahrenheit 451. Of all his work, why choose this one in particular? Well, Ray simply thought that Fahrenheit 451 was his most significant book, and therefore the one which would survive into the future long after his other works had been forgotten. Now, this was due to several factors, I think. First, it was, far and away, his best-selling book. I don't think there's any question about that. So his um, his royalty statements <laughs> would have shown him how popular it was. Uh, second, it was widely taught in schools and colleges, so that when Ray went off on his lecture tours and uh, you know did public speaking in colleges, he would frequently get into conversation with students about it because they'd been studying it. And then third, Fahrenheit received more critical attention than any of his other books. Now, I'm not sure that Ray was particularly influenced by what critics or scholars had to say about his work, but I'm, I'm sure he would have been flattered to know that his work was being studied. And if you, if you go onto Google Scholar, and do a search for academic papers written about Bradbury's works, you'll find many more about Fahrenheit 451 than anything else. It's the one book that seems to attract scholars. And I currently edit the uh, online journal, The New Ray Bradbury Review. And in the call for papers for the next issue, I've had to put a little statement saying, please note, we are not interested in articles about Fahrenheit 451 at this time. And the reason for putting that in is we get flooded with articles about Fahrenheit. And although there are lots of interesting things to say about Fahrenheit, there, there is not an unlimited number of interesting things. And so we've had to put a limit uh, onto that. Now, what I don't know is precisely when Ray settled on that as his epitaph, author of Fahrenheit 451. 
but I do know he had the grave marker prepared and he, he reserved his graveyard plot at the time of his wife's funeral. So when his wife was buried and her headstone was put in, Ray's headstone was put in. Some people thought this was a bit grim, but next to her grave was a gravestone that said Ray Bradbury, author of Fahrenheit 451, born 1920, and then a dash and a space for his date of death. So Ray was thinking ahead when he had that done. Um, amusingly, I think this is amusing, many years earlier, in uh, 1967, in an interview, Ray said something different about what he wanted uh, as his epitaph. So he said, and I quote, Here lies a teller of tales. If he had lived ten centuries ago, you would have walked down a street in old Baghdad or in some Middle Eastern city, and there among the menders of copper and the shapers of clay turned into a street of the storytellers and found him seated there among the tellers of tales who have existed since men came out of the caves. This is a proud heritage. This was his. So, yeah, that would have taken a lot of chiselling. And so author of Fahrenheit 451 might have been a, uh, <laughs> a compromise. Who knows? Did Bradbury feel his love of magic influenced his literary works? Simple answer, yes, he did. Uh, for him, magic and carnivals and fantasy fiction were all interconnected. And he saw much of his writing as being either about magic or as being inspired by magic. Um, his very first book was called Dark Carnival, and it was full of fantasy and horror stories, dark, magical tales. And The Illustrated Man was uh, another book which is mostly a collection of science fiction stories, and yet he used the carnival framing story to bind it together. The actual story of The Illustrated Man it provides the bookends to the book. Um, and, and, of course, the... Illustrated Man is uh, a man who has magical tattoos all over his body. And Something Wicked This Way Comes is built around carnivals and sideshows. And it also has an illustrated man and a Mr. Electrico type of act and a bullet trick act and all of that. So Ray, magic, carnival, fantasy fiction, it's all, it's all of a piece, really. And in various interviews, Ray did refer to himself as a magician. And he sometimes meant this metaphorically, but he also meant it literally because he did know how to do some magic tricks because he'd practised magic as a child. And he, he says he always wanted to be a magician, just as he always wanted to be a writer, he always wanted to be an actor and various other things, but he always wanted to be a magician. But it's also clear from the metaphorical use of the, of the term, I am a magician, that he considered his writing, in a sense, to be a form of sleight of hand. And uh, don't forget his introduction to the Ray Bradbury Theatre, the TV show, where he refers to his cluttered office as my magician's toy shop. So, yes, magic was very important to Ray. Given he spent best part of a decade writing for a film magazine script, how much of a voice did Bradbury have in the movie adaptations? And did Bradbury feel the experience working on the magazine helped in any of the film adaptations? Well, although Ray appeared in 
the magazine called Script a few times, he didn't actually spend very much time writing for it. Uh, what happened is that he put in his first contribution, which was accepted, and then he sent the editor a handful of other pieces, and my understanding from what I've read is that he sent them as a job lot. And these were then slotted into the magazine as and when there was space. Now, for the most part, his contributions weren't particularly to do with film. So don't be misled. The magazine may have been called Script, but it wasn't about script writing. It was more of a, I guess, a kind of a New Yorker magazine. It was a kind of a ragtag collection of um, mostly humorous or humour-based ideas. So I don't think his writing for Script magazine had much impact on his involvement with film. But that still leaves the other question, how much voice did Ray have in the movie adaptations of his work? And the answer to that is, it depends. Um, there, were, there are two basic situations that Ray found himself in, and he treated these two situations very differently. The first situation is when he was contracted to work on a script. Okay, so in the, the in in these cases, he was generally very protective of his script and he would fight for control where necessary, but he was generally very open to suggestions and wanted his scripts to be able to breathe and develop. And this is what happened, for example, in the 1960s when he was working on a proposed film version of The Martian Chronicles, uh, where his engagement with the producer-director pair Alan Pacula and Robert Mulligan led to some very, very creative variations in the plotting of the Martian Chronicles. So when Ray was the scriptwriter, he was open to suggestions, but protective of his, for want of a better term, property. The second situation, though, is where Ray simply sold the rights to one of his works to somebody else for them to make the film, and he wasn't the scriptwriter. In that situation, uh, he believed that he just shouldn't interfere, that the filmmakers should be allowed to do whatever they wanted or needed to do. You know, he'd sold them the rights. It's now theirs. They can do what they want with it. And a classic example here would be The Illustrated Man, which he had zero involvement with. He simply sold the rights. He could have asked to do the screenplay, but he didn't want to. He just wanted to sell the rights and then keep his hands off it. And that led to some <laughs> to some funny situations because, for example, one day he just happened to be walking across a movie studio, which I think must have been Warner's, and uh, somebody invited him to come inside and see Rod Steiger being made up as the illustrated man. And Ray didn't even know that the film was being shot at this point. To compound matters, there happened to be a documentary crew there that day, and they were making a little featurette about the behind the scenes of the illustrated man. So if you watch this little featurette, which comes on some of the DVD versions of the film, you'll see Rod Steiger lying there, and you'll see Ray Bradbury towering over him as the makeup's being applied. And you would get the impression, oh, Ray's there because it's his book they're adapting. But no, it was pure coincidence. Ray just happened to wander in on that particular day. 
whilst most of Bradbury's movies had critical acclaim, even winning Emmys and Peabody Awards, The Illustrated Man significantly bucked the trend. How did Bradbury see this, and did it affect his later work? Well, I believe that correspondence from the time shows that Ray was initially quite impressed with The Illustrated Man. But the various friends told him to uh, go and take another look, Ray, because we don't think it's quite as good as you think it is. So he, he went to have another viewing of the film. And he, having studied it, I mean, on first viewing, you simply let the film wash over you and you enjoy it. But on second viewing, you start thinking, hey, wait a minute. And what Ray began to realise on his second or maybe his third viewing of the film is that the framing story of The Illustrated Man, the, the bit with Rod Steiger as the tattooed man, all of that was very nicely done and kind of made sense in its own terms. But the short stories that the film was then made up of, because it's a kind of a, um, a compendium film of four or five short stories, uh, those short stories were nearly all compromised in some way. In the case of The Velt, for instance, the story begins kind of halfway through, and Ray thought that was absurd. You need to spend time doing the setup for the story before you can get into the shocks and surprises that the story brings. And in interviews, Ray always said that the script for The Illustrated Man wasn't written by a scriptwriter, it was written by a real estate agent. And I've never been able to find out if that is a true fact or whether it's just a Bradbury joke. I'd love to know. Anyway, The Illustrated Man got mixed reviews at the time, and still does to this day. But I suspect that, and I can't prove this, but I suspect that the strong imagery of the film, which did genuinely reflect the character of the book, helped to kind of solidify the viewing public's idea of what this Bradbury fellow must be about. And always bear in mind, of course, that more people will have seen the film than will have read the book. This is true of all books that are made into movies. More people go to movies than buy books. So even though the film is very dodgy in many ways, anybody catching even a glimpse of the film will build a kind of a mental picture of what Ray Bradbury must be about. And I don't think, in this case, that it's a bad mental picture that it gives you. I think what is bad about the film is the storytelling, and that might give you the impression that Bradbury is a terrible storyteller, and that, of course, would be an incorrect perception. I'm not sure that Ray was particularly concerned about the success or the failure of the film, because, frankly, he would have been paid up front for the book. But if it could be said to have affected his later work in any way, I think it would be in his determination to do those same stories better. So when he did Ray Bradbury Theatre, he did redo some of those stories from The Illustrated Man. He redid The Long Rains, for example. He redid The Velt. Uh, and also, a couple of decades later, he did write his own Illustrated Man screenplay. But that was never filmed. I remember reading that Bradbury was an avid reader. Who was his favourite author, and which authors did he feel influenced him the most? Yeah, Ray mentioned different authors at different times. 
but there were some kind of consistent name checks that he did give. He always said that he loved the works of Willa Cather and Eudora Welty, and I think those are two authors whose influence is often overlooked. People talk about Bradbury being influenced by Poe or H.G. Wells uh, or Jules Verne or Al Frank Baum. So the sort of the usual suspects in the fields of fantasy and science fiction. But what's overlooked are authors outside of those fields. So um, Willa Cather and Eudora Welty's works. Once you're told that he finds those fascinating, it seems obvious. Oh, yeah, of course. Bradbury is interested in some of the same things, you know, the idea of frontier fiction, for example. He also quite consistently said that his favourite story was Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And from at least the 1960s onwards, he said that he admired George Bernard Shaw. And what he was talking about there is the plays that Shaw wrote but also Shaw's essays, his kind of uh, forewords or introductions. Prefaces is probably the correct word to the plays. And I think you can see that influence both in some of Ray's own stage plays, but also in some of Ray's essays. And in terms of direct influences, again, those kind of fantasy and science fiction writers, he specifically cited Edgar Allan Poe, um, H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and outside of science fiction, Hemingway, Steinbeck. Steinbeck was an influence on the Martian Chronicles, if nothing else. Um, Sherwood Anderson, who wrote Winesburg, Ohio, which is clearly an influence on the Martian Chronicles and Dandelion Wine. And he commended the short stories of John Collier and Nigel Neal. Bradbury wrote sci-fi books and stories, some with a heavy emphasis on technology, and yet he was reportedly unsure about the internet, and even was resistant to publishing his work as e-books. How did he juxtapose these diametrically opposing positions? Well, I put this down to Ray being a bit of a curmudgeon in his later years, quite frankly. He never was the most scientific or technological writer, and he tended to concentrate on consequences rather than the technologies themselves. So in a story like The Velt, which essentially invents virtual reality, he does enough to convince you that the technology might be possible, but he then uses it basically to satirise television. Because when he wrote the story, he was living in an era when parents were starting to use TV sets as babysitters. So it's really, it's a satire on television, but it's more than that. And that's why the story has survived to this day, because he could have written a story that was just about television, but that's not how Ray's mind works. Ray's mind works in metaphor. So he invented this other thing, this veldt, this nursery, this magical place where you could find yourself projected into any imagined reality and it would be totally real to you. And he then uses that to make his point about bad parenting, which is what the story is really about. Ray never owned a computer, uh, so he didn't really understand what they could do. Uh, 
He saw early home computers or word processors as just glorified typewriters, and he didn't have any need for one of those because he was a very fast and a very adept typist. So why would he need a word processor? And in fact, I suspect that if you'd given him a word processor, it would have slowed him down. Uh, and, it, and he really would have hated that because he believed that he need, needed to get his ideas out of his head and onto the page with as rapid a flow as he possibly could. And then the other thing to say about computers and the internet and all of that is that Ray famously said in an interview when the internet came along uh, that we had, and I quote, too many internets. On to the business of ebooks. Well, in the 1990s, like many authors, he was concerned about piracy. He knew a number of his friends, writer friends, had had their works illegally spread across the internet. So he wanted nothing to do with that. And that's why he had an aversion to ebooks. What changed his mind was a simple conversation with his publisher or his editor who explained that it was time to allow his books to be sold as ebooks because publishers' contracts were beginning to include ebook options as a standard thing. And he probably shouldn't hold out against this because if he did, he would lose a potentially lucrative uh, revenue stream. So Ray was very pragmatic, and when things were explained to him in those terms, fine, he would accept them, and he happily signed the contract for the e-books. For anyone who came to Bradbury via his SF from the so-called Golden Age, which he left in the dust in terms of quality and depth of vision, how would you advise them to reacquaint themselves with his later work? In other words, where should they start with his middle and later career, if that isn't a contradiction? What a fantastic question. For some readers, I, to be honest, I think this may be an impossible task because the Golden Age stuff that they love almost certainly isn't the stuff that Ray was writing in the later period of his career. Somebody who admires, say, Fahrenheit 451 or The Martian Chronicles just isn't going to find much to interest them in a murder mystery novel like Death is a Lonely Business. So I think the answer, if we're specifically talking about getting fans of the earlier science fiction to read the later Bradbury, I think the answer is to point those, those particular readers to some very specific short stories. And I'm a great advocate of Ray's 1980s short story, The Toynbee Convector, uh, which is a science fiction story about the power of storytelling or the power of prophecy. It's a terrific story, which is a metaphor for what Ray Bradbury did as a science fiction writer. That story is in a collection called The Toynbee Convector. And also in that same collection is another great story called A Touch of Petulance. And this is about a man who meets his younger self. So that feels like the kind of classic age Bradbury science fiction. So... Uh, in that one collection, you've got two stories which are absolute classics of Bradbury's kind of science fiction. So I would 
slip those stories under the nose of the people who like the earlier science fiction stuff. And once you've got them interested in those stories, maybe you could persuade them to read the rest of the book, most of which isn't science fiction, by the way. <laughs> and once somebody has become attuned to the eclecticism of the late career Bradbury, and has become attuned to the writing style of the later Bradbury, which does differ very much from the earlier stuff, then you might be able to persuade those people to read Death is a Lonely Business and its two sequels. So that's how I would do it. To what extent did his real workspace look like that portrayed in Ray Bradbury theatre? The answer to this is very simple. 100%. Next question, please. Oh, sorry, I'll, I should explain. <laughs> it was his real workspace. During the 1980s and into the 1990s, Ray kept an office um, in Los Angeles in, I think it was Wilshire Boulevard. And that is the actual office you see on screen in the introduction to Ray Bradbury Theatre, not the elevator. So when you see at the very beginning of the show, this sort of uh, old fashioned elevator rising up through a building and then a pair of legs gets out and strides across the corridor, opens the door and goes into the office. The elevator isn't real. That's actually in a totally different building. The legs aren't real. Those are not Ray Bradbury's legs. That's somebody else. Ray wasn't there at the time. They got somebody to stand in for Ray's legs. The hand opening the door, I think, is probably not Ray either. But then once we're inside the office and Ray appears to be a little bit more plump than when he did when we just saw his legs, strangely, that's because it really is Ray this time. Now we're in his actual office in Wilshire Boulevard. Now, no doubt they tidied it up for filming. You know, they sent somebody around to prettify everything. But if you look for photos of Ray's office from around this time, let's say 1990, you'll find it's identical. It's the actual office. Now, later on, Ray gave up that office and moved his working office into the basement of his house. And all of the stuff from the original office, which was already very cluttered and overcrowded, all of that stuff went down into the basement, along with all the stuff he already had in the basement. And so he ended up with an even more cluttered workspace. By the way, most of the contents of the office, the basement version of the office, were gifted to the Ray Bradbury Centre in Indianapolis after he died. And the centre has reconstructed the office to give visitors a sense of Ray's working environment. So you can go there and see pretty much what Ray's office used to look like. Although their, their version of it is a lot tidier than the real one. I never went into the real office, but I've seen photos and whew, it was crowded. Was Bradbury afraid of the implications of the discovery of nuclear power, either for war or civilian use? Short answer, yes, he was. Uh, in a newspaper article he wrote in 1960, so 15 years after Hiroshima, he talked about the two terrible machineries, that's his word, two terrible machineries from familiar from science fiction, the rocket and the bomb, and how they had been combined. And he pointed out that 
science fiction had got there first, but that real life had very quickly caught up. This is what he wrote. He said, the basic fact of our time is machinery. The two most important developments in machinery, the atom bomb and the rocket, can either destroy or save us. This given, it's surprising, even since Sputnik, how few articles have concerned themselves with the impact of the latter in our civilization. Now, I'm not sure how Ray thought the atom bomb could save us. Uh, I suspect he should have reworded that slightly. He perhaps meant the atom and the rocket can either destroy or save us. But anyway, he clearly saw the dangers of atomic bombs and their coupling to rockets in the form of the intercontinental ballistic missile. And of course, two of his best books use the fear of nuclear war as a kind of a, well, in one case as a, a an ongoing threat, and in the other case as a world-changing event when it happens. So in Fahrenheit 451, we're constantly reading about jets flying overhead and the fear of these nuclear bombers. And uh, at the end of the book, spoilers, a third world war does break out. And in the Martian Chronicles, the colonists on Mars watch in absolute horror as they see the Earth destroyed in a colossal nuclear war. And in both books, of course, Ray is able to flip this because he has a handful of survivors in both cases, and they're faced with somehow rebuilding civilization. In Fahrenheit, the book people turn around and head back to the city. In the Martian Chronicles, the last remaining remnants of humankind on Mars recognize themselves as the new Martians, basically saying we have to rebuild from scratch. But Ray was well aware that well, any technology can be used for good or for evil. Um, and in 1962, he wrote this. He wrote, The atomic power which can cure our cancer can also broil us up in cauliflower clouds of radioactive chaff. The rocket that can lift us to the greatest freedom since creation can also blow us to kingdom come. So he was well aware that technology, in a sense, is neutral because it can be used for good or for evil. And our aim is obviously to try and get it to be used for good. My own sense is that the Ray Bradbury who'd grown up as a, a science fiction fan with the joyous idea of space travel was determined to redeem the rocket because the rocket had become a military weapon. This was in the early 60s. There was always this military use of rockets which threatened to destroy us. So he was determined to wrest the rocket away from those military people and promote its use instead as a potential saviour of humankind. How do rockets save us? Well, in Ray's view, it would be by flying us to Mars and beyond so that we're, we're safe, we've got somewhere else to go. Now, we can debate the, the merits of that position, but that was Ray's basic position. I understand Bradbury is on school curricula in the US and some other countries, which may be a good or a bad thing in terms of how younger folks react to him. Do you think children or younger people still like Bradbury's work? 
Do they still find him, so to speak? Now for this one, I literally have no evidence-based stuff to give you. I wish I did, but I haven't been able to find anything specific about this. So I can only give you my own gut feelings. And I may be right, I may be wrong. Obviously, I think I'm right, but I'm open to persuasion either way. On the one hand, Ray has been read by a couple of generations of readers at this point, okay? And we know he remains a popular author. Those are facts. This is where the gut feeling comes in. I've always felt that school kids dislike anything that they are forced to read. So although it's good to expose a new generation to Ray's work, it can very easily backfire. And that may have happened. Why do I think that may have happened? Well, I'm acutely aware that the current Bradbury audience, the readership, is an ageing audience, or possibly aged audience. And I include myself in that number. You see, when I do Bradbury events, whether in the UK or in the US, the audience sways older rather than younger. And it's the same with my podcast audience. It's skewed to an older demographic. That's not to say that there aren't any young readers of Bradbury, that there aren't any young listeners to this podcast. There are, of course there are. But when you look at the distribution of ages in the audience, you'll find a few young people, mostly older people. My fear is, yes, Bradbury is being taught in schools, but it's putting the kids off Bradbury. So the only willing readers of Bradbury are the older ones. That's a dangerous position because as that demographic ages, they will age out of reading Bradbury and Bradbury will no longer be published. That would be my fear. So how do we tackle that? Well, what I'd like to see, I'd love to see more young people reading Bradbury, but I, I would want them to be doing it because they had discovered Bradbury for themselves. And how do we do that? I think the way to do it is to make some great new films, Netflix series, or computer games, or graphic novels that are based on Bradbury's work. Get them interested in those and then say, oh look, this was based on a book. Would you like to read the book? And they would, I'm sure. So I think that's how we do it. And there have been efforts along those lines in recent years. There have been, in recent memory, attempts to film Bradbury's works. They've just not been very good. There have been some graphic novels, but they've not stuck around for very long. But I think we need more of those to get people interested in the product kind of through a back door and then give them the books. So if you get younger people reading Bradbury, then that sets us up for a much longer lifespan for Bradbury's works. I read Dandelion Wine a long time ago and was wondering at the time where he got the inspiration for this book. Well, Dandelion Wine is nearly all inspired by Ray's real childhood in Waukegan, Illinois. So that's not to say that the book is a true story, because it's not. But what he did was fictionalise people he knew. So he was writing very much about things that scared him or excited him, 
when he was a child. And the geography of Greentown, the, the setting of Dandelion Wine, is, well, it has a, a very close correspondence to the real Waukegan, Illinois. There is a ravine in Waukegan. It really does separate <laughs> the place where Bradbury lived from the um, the theatres, you know, the, the, the hub of the town and the library. So the real Bradbury used to cross the ravine to get into town, just as the characters do in the book. And on, on my blog at bradburymedia.co.uk, uh, I have a, a post where I compared the uh, a hand-drawn map that Ray had done, a map of Greentown, where I compared that to the real Waukegan, as seen on uh, Google Maps. So uh, I'll give you a link to that in the show notes, and you can take a look at that comparison. And even in, um, in Dandelion Wine, there's a character called The Lonely One, we only briefly glimpse him. He's a kind of a murderous figure that lurks in the shadows. We never get a clear view of him. But even the lonely one is based on a real criminal from Waukegan, Illinois. Now, the real criminal was not a murderer. He was just a petty thief. But uh, again, on my blog, I did a, a comparison of the fictional with the real. So I'll give you a link to that. So the inspiration for dandelion wine pretty much is real life. Did Bradbury have advanced discussions with his great friend Ray Harryhausen about collaborating on the making of a movie for which he would have written the screenplay while Harryhausen would have produced the special effects? Alas, no. They always talked about working together and they always said that it had been their ambition from a very early age to work together. I think they were 18 when they met, but I've not been able to find any evidence of them taking any serious steps towards it once they had become professionals. Now, I think this is largely because they were both too busy, uh, especially once they became established film professionals. So Bradbury was attached to a number of film projects in the late 50s and the early 60s. So he was becoming a film writer after he wrote the screenplay for Moby Dick in 1953-54. He was trying to continue uh, a screenwriting career, but he was working on various projects. So he was tied up, if you like, and similarly, Harryhausen was busily establishing his working partnership with his uh, producer pal, Charles H. Schneer. So when they were in a position to work together in the sense of being established professionals, they were both too busy with other projects. So there was very little opportunity for them to converge their interests. The last attempt that I know of where they tried to link up but it was kind of doomed from the outset, was when Bradbury wanted to adapt his story Tyrannosaurus Rex for the Ray Bradbury Theatre TV series. And he su suggested to the producers uh, of the show that Harryhausen might be the man to do the animation. But there were a couple of things. The budget of the show was incredibly low so that they wouldn't have been able to afford Harryhausen. And secondly, I'm pretty sure that by that time, Harryhausen considered himself to be retired. So 
it's unlikely that he would have been persuaded out of retirement, even to work with his friend Ray Bradbury. Instead, by the way, that episode of uh, Ray Bradbury Theatre, Tyrannosaurus Rex, they got a French animator who is sometimes referred to as the French Ray Harryhausen. And uh, it looked terrible because they'd spent about $5 on the animation. It was awful. <laughs> anyway, on my blog, again, sorry to be so constantly self-referential here, but I, I did a blog post about the two rays and how their paths crossed and intertwined over the years. So again, in the show notes, I'll give you a link to that so that you can read more. Did Bradbury write science fiction? Which of his works, if any, would you consider to be SF? There are two answers to this. There's what I say, and there's what Ray says. Ray saw himself as someone who wrote science fiction, and fantasy, and horror, and mystery stories, and, 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 on and on. So he considered himself to be a science fiction writer, among many other things. And if you look at his major books, he considered that... Uh, only Fahrenheit 451 was really science fiction. And his reasoning was based on his personal definition of what distinguishes science fiction from fantasy. He always said that science fiction is possible, whereas fantasy is impossible. And by this definition, he counts the Martian Chronicles as fantasy, because he knew very well that the Martian Chronicles couldn't happen in real life because you can't breathe on Mars and there are no Martians. You know, he knew very well that what he was writing at the time he wrote it was pure and utter fantasy. But Fahrenheit 451, he believed, was science fiction because he believed you could indeed have people who would ban books and uh, make it a legal requirement for books to be burned and all of that. He believed that that was all possible. Not likely, perhaps, but possible, as well as just being a metaphor for the, the real world. So by Bradbury's definition, some of his work is science fiction, some of it isn't. Now, I take a broader view of what counts as science fiction. For me, if a work of fiction makes intelligent use of science fictional settings and science fictional tropes, it is science fiction. So if you write a story that has rocket ships in it and people travel to Mars, it's science fiction. If they're traveling to Mars by dragon, well, that's fantasy. But if they're using rockets, you know, they're using recognizable technology. Yeah, that's science fiction. So my fairly broad definition of science fiction, really, I, I use the uh, if it walks like a duck, it's a duck definition. You know, uh, there are much more sophisticated definitions of science fiction, and there are hundreds of definitions of science fiction. None of them is definitive. It's basically you pick the one that you fancy. And the one I like is if it, if it quacks like science fiction, it's science fiction. So using this definition, the Martian Chronicles is science fiction. So is much of The Illustrated Man. Uh, so is Leviathan 99, which is Ray's retelling of Moby Dick 
in space. And so are maybe a hundred of his short stories. Now, in 1962, Ray wrote something about science fiction and society. I'm going to read this to you, and then I'll tell you why I'm reading it. He wrote, Any society where the family structure has been fragmented and dispersed, where morality has been given a severe shake and brought to a refocus in drive-in theatres as the result of one idea in motion, the automobile, is a science fiction society. Any society where natural man, the pedestrian, becomes the intruder and unnatural man encased in a steel shell becomes his molester is a civilization of science fiction nightmares. Ray wrote that in an article called Cry the Cosmos in Life magazine in 1962. And he appears to be referencing his short story The Pedestrian there and also Fahrenheit 451. Now, by 1962, Ray wasn't writing very much new science fiction at all. If you plot out all the stories he ever wrote, most of the science fiction stuff was done well before 1962. He did do a few science fiction stories in his later career, but not many. Much of his stuff after the early 60s was fantasy or mainstream fiction, but not particularly science fiction. But writing in a non-fiction article, he's referring to science fiction. And this is Ray all over. He may have moved on from writing science fiction by 1962, but he still saw himself very much aligned to the field of science fiction. He still very much believed in its, not its predictive power, but in its kind of ability to diagnose the ills of society. So he still valued science fiction and he was very happy. And I, in fact, I would say he was proud to engage in the rhetoric of science fiction, even when he had more or less given up writing it. So for the question of, was Bradbury a science fiction writer? Yes, by the fact of the matter that he wrote some science fiction, but more importantly, he was a science fiction writer through his belief in science fiction. Can you expand on Bradbury's quote about his college being the library and how he educated himself? He said, I'm completely library educated. I've never been to college. I discovered that the library is the real school. Because as a librarian, that's our dream to make that kind of a difference in people's lives. Well, it is literally true that Ray never went to college. And it is true that he spent a lot of time in libraries because he loved books and he was intensely curious about all sorts of subjects. But he was also from a very poor family and therefore he couldn't afford to buy many books. So put those elements all together and you get Bradbury, the autodidact. Couldn't afford to go to college, couldn't afford to buy books, very keen to learn, so he taught himself. I think you get the best sense of what the library means to Bradbury when you read Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is partly set in the library of Greentown. And that is, well, it's fictional, but it's modelled on the real Carnegie Library of Bradbury's hometown, Waukegan. And when you read the story, you 
see that he mainly details the library through the eyes and the ears of Jim and Will, the two child protagonists of the book. And you get a sense of the books talking to the kids, calling out to them, uh, making sounds as they walk from one section of the library to another. And then there's the famous scene where the boys have to hide themselves among the books. And the other famous scene where they join with Will's father to research the so-called autumn people who've come to town to do evil over many, many years. The library in Something Wicked isn't just a place filled with books. It's a whole other world that you can lose yourself in or that you have to escape from. And it's full of these tomes that you can defend yourself with. So it's, again, a very metaphorical representation of the library and the power of books. Later in his career, Ray published a short story set in a library, a beautiful little piece called Exchange. And you can find that one in Quicker Than the Eye. And I think the last thing to say about libraries is that he had a firm belief in the value of public libraries. And he did a lot of work with libraries over the years specifically in and around Los Angeles, but also further afield. And you will find in various libraries that there are rooms named after Bradbury, and there are even whole libraries dedicated to Bradbury. There's one in Los Angeles that is. And just outside the main uh, library in Los Angeles is uh, an intersection, a, a road crossing called Ray Bradbury Square. Neil Gaiman said a friend told him that when he was 12 he met Bradbury. And that when Bradbury found out he wanted to be a writer, he invited him to his office and spoke to him for half a day about how to become a writer. What other acts of kindness, charity, and mentorship is Bradbury known for? Ray was incredibly generous with his time and his advice. And he seemed to try to answer every fan letter he received. And to be honest, if he hadn't replied to so many fan letters, he might have written a few more books. <laughs> so us fans may be um, responsible for reducing his output. Uh, there are quite a few writers who considered Ray to be their mentor. And I think I'm right in saying that William F. Nolan would say that. Richard Matheson would say that. Greg Bear would say that. And in one of my early podcast episodes, I interviewed Gregory Miller, who is a writer who was one of Ray's last mentees. So, you know, in the final decade or so of Ray's life. Uh, so that's worth checking out if you haven't already heard it. I talk a bit more about mentorship and what it meant uh, in, in Bradbury's case. Bradbury said, those writers who merely dwell on despair without offering solutions are praying mantises without jaws. I'm busy making babies and they're telling me everyone is dead. What do you think Bradbury meant here? And how can an author make sure they don't merely dwell on despair? I think it's fairly clear that Ray's own stories underwent a shift around the time that he got married and had kids. If you look at his earliest stories, they were published in Weird Tales magazine and then collected in his first book, Dark Carnival. And many of these were very dark fantasies. Lots of stories about death in various ways and people being hounded down by, I don't know, the, the elements, natural forces like the wind 
And, and if you look at a, an early story like The October Game, you find a very dark story indeed. It's one that a lot of people read or reread around the time of Halloween because of the October theme of it. And Ray said that The October Game is a story that he couldn't and wouldn't have written once he'd become a parent. So I think it's fairly clear that once he had kids, once he had responsibilities, he was much more careful about the the darker side of things that he showed in his stories. But just to go back to that quote in the question uh, about writers dwelling on despair, I think the key part of the quote isn't dwelling on despair. I think it's the other bit. It's dwell on despair without offering solutions. This is the thing that upset Ray the most, was people who show a dark world but show no way out of it. Ray was a kind of optimist. He always liked to look for the brighter things in life. But he knew enough about drama to know that you might have to take your hero to a very dark place in order to rescue them or to provide them with hope at the end. Um, Fahrenheit 451 is is very bleak. It's a dystopia. Uh, there's a loss of literacy. There's the destruction of cities in a global nuclear war. But then the last page or so of the book has his book people stopping, turning around and going back to the ruined city in order to start again. Similarly, The Martian Chronicles ends with the destruction of the entire planet Earth. And there's just a handful of survivors on Mars, and that's very grim. But the last chapter has one of the last families realise that they are the Martians now. And it's time to start anew and to rebuild. So from Ray's works, we can take the lesson that it is okay to show despair, maybe even to dwell on it somewhat, but it's probably best to then rescue people from that despair, or at least show where the exit is from the despair. Bradbury said, a writer writes about those things that he can't do, his hangups. I was afraid of the dark until I was 21, 22 years old. Perhaps some of that is still in me. So my first books are excursions in darkness, trying to make do with my fears. Out of these weaknesses, I made strengths. How did Bradbury channel this negative energy into something positive? And, and how can other writers do the same? Well, I think Ray is a bit harsh on his younger self there. Those early stories, uh, which were inspired by his fears, they're among his best because he is actually expressing universal fears. You know, we're all afraid of the dark. We're all afraid of dying. We're all afraid of loss. As he matured, though, I think he became afraid of going to those dark places. So he was, in a sense, overcome by a different kind of fear. It was now the fear of going to those darker places. I think on a practical level, one of the things Ray did was move the focus of his stories to younger protagonists. So if you think of Dandelion Wine with its 12-year-old um, lead character who discovers what death is, or something wicked, which has a pair of protagonists who are, what, 12 or 13, and they have to confront pure evil, uh, or the Halloween tree with a little gang of, I don't know, 10 to 12-year-olds, there's something of a pattern there. 
He's still taking his characters to some very dark places, but he's bringing them back up to the light. And in those stories where he's writing about children, he is the narrator of their stories. So he's taking a, a kind of a parental distance from the events that he's showing us. And maybe this makes these stories more comforting to read, especially if you compare them to the early weird tale stories, because in those he's usually narrating a tale about an adult male who is very similar to himself. So there's no parental distance. He's instead putting himself at the centre of the story. And by analogy, the reader feels that they are at the centre of the story. These later works with children in the lead roles take more of a parental position. And so they're a bit more comforting, I think, for the reader. Bradbury said, if you're fortunate, you can lose your innocence in one way, but still retain a childlike vision. How did Bradbury keep a childlike aspect in his writing? I think the most obvious way he did this was by recalling his own childhood. If you think about Dandelion Wine, the sequel to it, Farewell Summer, and Something Wicked This Way Comes, they're all of them based in some way on actual memories, uh, albeit enhanced for dramatic purposes. It's probably significant that most of his stories set in childhood feature these characters who are aged between about 10 and 13. He rarely... I can't think of any story, really, where he writes about an older teen, for example. Although he did once write a story about a murderous baby. But he's usually writing about children who are 10 to 13, so just on the on the edge of puberty, if you like, uh, which some people may find Freudianly significant, if that's a term. But I think there's a more biographical reason that he, he might cut off at that sort of 13-year-old uh, age. And that is, that's the age that he moved with his family to California. So his childhood really was separated from his teenage years and his adult years because he lived in two very different places. Other than stories with young protagonists, uh, I think he also kept a childlike aspect in other stories that he wrote. Uh, I mean, I think there's a an underlying optimism to much of his later work. And certainly if you look at his poetry, you'll see there's a kind of bright-eyed optimism there. Uh, especially when he's addressing where we as a species can go in the future. So he wrote a couple of poems about the kind of the future of humankind. And these are very optimistic pieces on the whole, although there are some negative ones as well. Maybe these stories, these more optimistic pieces, these poems, maybe they're wish fulfilment. Mm, I don't know. I think he had a strong belief that we can talk ourselves into despair. And by the same token, we can talk ourselves out of despair. And again, I return to his short story, The Toynbee Convector. And th this is the story about the man who claims to have visited the future. And he's seen a gloriously wonderful future world. And people believe him. It's a very convincing account that he gives, and people have no reason to doubt him whatsoever. And over time, 
we end up creating a world just like the time traveller told us about. But then it turns out he was lying the whole damn time. He never was a time traveller. He never did see the future. But given a credible view of a glorious future, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's the, the moral of that particular story. And I think Ray believed that. I think he believed that you could, as I say, talk yourself into despair, or you could talk yourself out of despair, both on an individual level and on a kind of a, a societal or a um, species level. I've always been amused by this Bradbury quote. I have never listen to anyone who criticized my taste in space travel, sideshows or gorillas. When this occurs, I pack up my dinosaurs and leave the room. Is there a story behind this quote? I don't think there is a particular story behind this quote, but Ray did often talk about a time in his childhood where he tore up all of his old comics and threw them away. And he did it because his friends or his family had convinced him that they were childish nonsense and you're too old for that stuff. So he destroyed it all, and then later on he regretted it, and he actually spent the rest of his life surrounding himself with comics and toys, kind of rebuilding that childhood, as if to say that he was right to have treasured those childhood fantasies. And of course, he always said that his, his stories were very much inspired by those childhood things, his writing was inspired by The Wizard of Oz. It was inspired by Lewis Carroll. So those childish things that people told him to put away were the very things he needed to create the, the wonderful fiction that we're familiar with now. Bradbury was said to have a pomegranate mind. What does this mean? And how did it make Bradbury more unique? Of course, a, a pomegranate is it's a fruit. It looks a bit like an apple until you peel it and then you find it or cut it in half and then you find it's bursting with hundreds of little juicy seeds. So there's your pomegranate mind. It's a mind that is bursting with hundreds of tiny ideas. Now, as far as I know, it was Bradbury himself who talked about having such a mind. <laughs> but uh, he may not be the only person to have one, of course. One of the writing techniques that Ray firmly believed in was free writing. I don't know if he called it this, but it's what is often called free writing. And that's where you sit at your keyboard and you just let the ideas flow. And often that will produce nonsense, but other times it will surprise the writer with ideas they didn't even know they had. And I think this is probably where the pomegranate is the most appropriate metaphor for Ray Bradbury. Uh, he also had a, a little sign on his typewriter that said, don't think. And <laughs> what that meant is don't let the intellect or anything else for that matter, get in the way of that free flow of ideas. Whenever I talk about this approach of Ray's to writing, I always feel compelled to add something. And that is, he never took those first drafts of free flow writing as finished compositions. He did firmly believe in applying intellect to his writing, despite the sign that says don't think. But he did the thinking in the second stage. 
So that's the stage of editing and rewriting. Did Bradbury have favourite episodes from the Ray Bradbury Theatre? He had quite a few favourites. I do know he was fond of The Haunting of the New, and he was also very pleased with the Martian Chronicles stories that he redid in that show. There were a a few of those. Mars's Heaven was redone, And the Moon Be Still as Bright, The Long Years. And um, the thing here is that in 1980, there was a TV miniseries based on the Martian Chronicles, and it had thoroughly disappointed him because he thought it was very badly done. So he desperately wanted to rescue his stories from that fate of having been badly adapted, and he wanted to redo them and do them properly. So he was quite pleased with those. Bradbury said, I'd like to come back every 50 years and see how we can use certain technological advantages to our advantage, say, in education. What sort of technological improvements do you think he imagined or expected? Well, Ray was clearly fascinated with the idea of robots and probably inspired by the animatronic Abraham Lincoln at Disneyland. He foresaw a time when we would learn from robot versions of Plato and Aristotle. (laughs) In his um, fiction, Ray wrote about robots which were ultra real. So these are robots that look exactly like you and me. Uh, If you think of the short stories Marionettes Inc. and Icing the Body Electric, he was never into these sort of metal man kind of robots or the Asimovian nuts and bolts of robotics. All he was interested in was robots which were indistinguishable from real people. The, the only exception I can think of to that is the mechanical hound in Fahrenheit 451. And that's a ludicrous creation, uh, you know, a robotic dog. Except when you look at what Boston Dynamics have been doing with the highly <laughs> realistic kind of animal robots that they've created, most of which don't have a head. They're just a body and four legs, but they can run like a dog. So... Uh, Yeah, Ray's ludicrous robot technology is perhaps a bit more plausible than we thought. Also, of course, he imagined virtual reality to be part of our future. I mean, whether he really believed in that or not, I don't know. Uh, He was using it to make a point in a story like The Velt, but he uses a similar technology in Fahrenheit 451. So I think he probably did believe that the ultimate future of film and television would be a kind of a surround vision environment. And he did very much believe in what I would call the Disney method of education, which is producing entertaining visitor attractions, which are also educational. And when he worked on these himself, what he tended to do was concern himself only with the story that needed to be told. And he left it to the engineers, or in the case of Disney, the Imagineers, to find a way of executing the concept. Not many people know that Ray also worked with Douglas Trumbull on a couple of ride concepts. Now, these didn't come to fruition, but like everything that Douglas Trumbull ever did, 
these projects would have been executed with cutting edge technology, but the technology would be nothing to do with Ray. Ray would simply have devised a story that was worthy of telling and that probably had some educational purpose as well as the entertainment value. And then he would leave it to Trumbull and the engineers to figure out a way of making that story work. What did Bradbury mean when he said, it's not going to do any good to land on Mars if we're stupid? How did Bradbury believe we could protect future generations from stupidity? Well, I think this all goes back to his belief that everyone needs to educate themselves. Don't just stop learning because you've finished school. Uh, I mean, he clearly believed that libraries, especially free libraries, public libraries, were key to this because they take away barriers to learning and barriers to curiosity. And he also believed that literacy was vital because without literacy, obviously, you can't read, you can't educate yourself further. So um, I think that's where this is coming from. The bit about landing on Mars, it's not going to do any good to land on Mars if we uh, if we're stupid. Uh, I think that simply reflects his firm belief that we should or we must move out from Earth into the solar system. This is one of his key beliefs. Bradbury said in his coda to Fahrenheit 451, there is more than one way to burn a book, and the world is full of people running about with lit matches. Today there is a trend of so-called well-intentioned censorship where stories with problematic language are being edited. How would Bradbury have combated this? I'm fairly certain that Ray would have resisted any attempt at censorship. When he discovered cases where his own books had been tampered with, he was absolutely livid and he insisted that the original text, the correct text, would be reinstated. And I think it's clear from Fahrenheit 451 that the value of books lies not so much in their information content, but more in the way that they allow intellects to uh, to connect across vast gulfs of space and time. I mean, this is why Fahrenheit 451 has so many quotations in it. It's the great minds of the past speaking to us as the reader, even if those quotes are out of context, which most of them are, frankly. Now, I don't think Ray ever said this, but uh, I think we can connect to the intellect of Mark Twain, even though he died long before any of us were born. But if you go and take the problematic language out of Mark Twain, what does that do to that ability for us to commune with Twain? And I'm just using Twain as a convenient example, but I think you could use that with any writer, any author from the past. Did he have a particular favourite among his stories? I don't know that Ray had an absolute favourite, but he did often refer to something wicked Something Wicked This Way comes as the book that most moved him. And the reason he gave is that he discovered many years after he'd written it that he had been writing about his own father. Were there any science fiction writers he had correspondence or friendships with? Yes. How long have you got? (laughs) There were loads. He knew all of the major science fiction writers of his lifetime. Uh, Robert Heinlein was one of his early mentors as were Lee Brackett, Edmund Hamilton, Henry Cutner, Catherine Elmore. He in turn mentored Richard Matheson, 
William F. Nolan, George Clayton Johnson, Greg Bear, and he was good friends with Charles Beaumont, Harlan Ellison, Arthur C. Clarke, Gene Roddenberry, and the list goes on and on. Uh, in many ways, it's easier to say who didn't he know than who did he know. Just about the only writer I can think of who he didn't get on with is uh, Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame. But uh, even there, they started out on good terms, but the relationship uh, went sour at some point. Are there any examples of Bradbury corresponding or meeting with fans? Every single person I know who ever wrote Bradbury a fan letter got a reply. And rarely were these form letters. He always wrote a personalised reply. And the most beautiful example I, I know of is the correspondence between British writer Brian Sibley and Ray Bradbury. It's been quite widely published. It was published in a book a few years ago, and it's on Brian's website, and it's been reproduced all over the internet. But um, a 24-year-old Brian Sibley, who was a writer and broadcaster, um, but he, he wrote to Ray pretty much just as a fan. And he innocently said something about Disney's animatronics. And Ray wrote back with this long letter with lots of PSs and afterthoughts. And it's an amazing, it, it, I would say it's a rant, but it's, it's, it's better than a rant. <laughs> it's Bradbury really laying out everything he believes about robots and Disney and the right way of doing things. Uh, it's a fabulous piece of correspondence. So if you go to the show notes, I'll give you a link to that. And as far as meeting with fans is concerned, I only ever attended two events where Bradbury was meeting his fans. One of them was at a conference, and I've probably told this story before on the podcast, so I apologise for the repetition. But we're sitting in this conference room, and there I, I don't know how many people were there, perhaps a 100 academics in this conference room and Ray Bradbury is brought in, he's put onto the stage ready to give his talk and then they say open the doors and those of us sitting in the audience we turned around and looked behind us and the wall at the back of this room that had about 100 people in it, the wall just sort of folded back and revealed there was another audience there <laughs> I don't know how many people, maybe 200 additional people, which were not attendees of the conference. They were just members of the public who travelled to Riverside, California, to come and get uh, a meeting with Ray. And the queue for signatures for autographs was enormous. And there came a point where time was running out and Ray was getting tired. I mean, he was in his 80s at this point. Uh, he was getting tired and he had to turn to one of his helpers and say, kill the queue, because he knew that he couldn't possibly sign for everybody who had turned out to see him. So, yeah, Ray met fans en masse and tried to have a little few moments with each one. What are some of the most interesting or surprising things you've learned about Bradbury over the years? The main thing that has surprised me is the sheer number of famous people that Ray interacted with. For me, it's a real joy when you discover that he he wrote film scripts for Carol Reed, 
the director of The Third Man, that he wrote plays for Charles Lawton, that the original version of Something Wicked This Way Comes was written for Gene Kelly. Uh, Ray met the philosopher Bertrand Russell. He considered the actress Bo Derrick among his best friends. He knew and corresponded with Fellini and Kurosawa and Christopher Lee and Catherine Hepburn and Carl Sagan. And the list just goes on and on and on. And I think this relates again to this pomegranate mind that we were talking of earlier. Ray was interested in every subject under the sun. And I think it also relates to his love of receiving fan letters because he was a person who also wrote fan letters to famous people. And he was overjoyed when he got replies from them. So one of the most important books of recent years has just come out, I think. I haven't actually seen it yet, but it's been published, and that is Remembrance, which is a selection of correspondence from Ray Bradbury's files. So you get to see Ray's letters and letters that people wrote to Ray. And it's an astonishing array of people most of whom are famous, um, though some of them are not, because some of the best correspondents Ray had are not famous people. But uh, yeah, so that's the most interesting thing to me, is how deeply entwined Ray Bradbury was with 20th century culture. The second most interesting or most surprising thing, this, this I think is most surprising for other people. It's To me, it's now become so normalised that it doesn't faze me at all. But it's if ever I want to give people a fascinating fact, this is the thing that I give them, because I, it makes most people go, oh, I didn't know that. And that is that Ray Bradbury indirectly is responsible for the modern shopping mall. Yeah, you heard me. <laughs> For a time in the 1980s, he worked with the famous architect, John Jurdy. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he worked with Jurdy on conceptual designs for shopping centres and for uh, town centres. And what Bradbury was asked to do is present his ideas in the form of essays. And then Jurdy would take these ideas and would try to embody them in the architectural designs. Now, among Ray's key contributions to the modern shopping mall are these. One is to put the food court at the very heart of the mall. And the other is to build the corridors so that you can't quite see what's around the next corner. And you occasionally build in a corridor which turns out to be a dead end so that people have to turn back on themselves to find their way back to where they were. This last concept he called the aesthetic of lostness. He maintained that we like to get a little bit lost and confused. And um, the reason we like it is because it gives us a chance to retrace our steps and therefore learn how the mall is actually laid out. Now, if you visit any shopping mall built since about 1990, you'll find that most of Bradbury's concepts are there. <laughs> and it's the reason it's happened is because Bradbury wrote the essays, Jurdy 
built the concepts into his designs for shopping centres in places like Glendale, California. His designs won awards and then other people who were building shopping malls elsewhere in the world copied what Jerdy had done. And so today we've got the food court. And maybe that's Ray Bradbury's legacy. He gave us the food court. What were some of Bradbury's hobbies other than writing? Well, I don't know that Ray Ray really had time for hobbies. He was too busy doing all the things that he did, which obviously were all based around writing in some way. But uh, he did do a bit of painting. And if you check out the book Ray Bradbury, An Illustrated Life by Jerry Wiest, you'll find lots of examples in there of preliminary designs that he did for his own books, uh, some of which were used, some of which were not. And if you watch the documentary from the 1960s, which is called something like Portrait of a Writer, uh, you'll find it on YouTube. It's a, a little black and white documentary about half an hour long. You'll see that Ray is practicing this hobby and you'll see him painting a picture of a Halloween tree. Frankly, I think his other hobby really was eating and drinking. <laughs> now, he wasn't he wasn't really a sophisticated gourmet or anything like that. And he tended to prefer the opposite. He, he preferred what most people would call junk food. But I think it's no coincidence that when he was working with Jerdy on those designs for town centres and uh, shopping malls, one of the ideas he put forward, well, one of the fundamental principles that Bradbury put forward was and this is a paraphrase, but it's a very close paraphrase. He said, people don't go out to shop. They go out to eat. And while they're out, they shop. <laughs> now, I, I can't deny that there's some grain of truth in that, but I've always thought that's probably the philosophy of somebody who likes to eat. And I, I know that he did enjoy uh, food and drink. Did Bradbury have a writing routine he stuck to? Well, it undoubtedly changed and evolved over the years, but the basic routine that he always talked about went like this. Um, first of all, there's a kind of a pre-writing phase. He always said that the, uh, the, the waking moments of the day, when you're kind of half asleep and you're just waking up, he said that's when you get your best ideas. And he called that his morning theatre. So you need to somehow capture those first thing in the morning ideas. And the best way to do that is to spend the morning writing. So that's what he would do. And that would be free writing. So he would sit at the typewriter without safety net, without notes, without anything. He would just type. He would just let the ideas flood out onto the page with minimal intellectual thought. And now, as I said earlier, that's not to say he didn't believe in the intellect. He did, but he didn't believe in using the intellect to generate ideas. You just let it all flow, even if you're typing nonsense. So that's what he did in the mornings. Then in the afternoons, he would take something that he had written on a previous day. So he might go back to something from a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago or even a year ago and he would 
rework it. Now, this is where the intellect would come to bear to some extent, because he would be going through looking to correct the manuscript and sort of make the logic of the story sensible, that kind of thing. But he would also do his rewriting at this point. And in at least one interview in 1967, he said that this redrafting of a story, this second stage of writing, wasn't rewriting, it was reliving. So he essentially, I think, would read the story and then put it aside and more or less write it again from memory. And this time it would come out better. So that would tend to be his routine. I think the only other thing to add to that is that when his daughters were young, he said that he wrote from Monday to Friday only, and he would keep the weekends free for family time. And I don't know for sure, but I imagine this is what motivated him to rent an office away from his house so that he could keep a, a clear separation between work and home. So that is the kind of the perfect writing day for Bradbury. Um, I, I know in some interviews he also talked about taking naps and said that he was very good at those. Even just a short nap, you know, 20, 30 minutes would be enough uh, between the first stage of free writing and then the rewriting that he would do in an, in an afternoon. But I've looked at a lot of files from his later career, particularly in the 80s and 90s when he was working on the Ray Bradbury Theatre and other film and TV projects. I've looked at a lot of those manuscripts and alongside the typewritten stuff, you also find a lot of handwritten pages. And these handwritten pages from the 80s and the 90s, he usually wrote in quite large block capitals. And he would write with kind of a felt-tip pen or like a Sharpie, that kind of thing. And now the reason I think he wrote in large block capitals is simply that he was short-sighted. And I'm the same, I'm, I'm very short-sighted. So I tend to write big sometimes if I want what I've written to be clear. Now, 80s and 90s, this is the time that he was doing a lot of traveling he would travel to events in the back of a car. He would travel across country by train. He would fly to Paris on Concorde and he would do that. Originally he did it because he was uh, working with uh, Disneyland Paris, but he came to love Paris. So he started traveling to Paris just for fun. And while he was traveling, he would write by hand. It's not very easy to work on a manual typewriter on a plane, for example. It would uh, annoy the other passengers. So he would write longhand. So a lot of the drafting that he did for Ray Bradbury theatre scripts are written longhand. My point is that in these busier times of his life, when he couldn't have a straightforward nine to five, Monday to Friday writing existence, he was fitting his writing in around other things that he was doing. So if he was traveling, he would do longhand writing on the train, on the plane, or in the automobile. Sounds like a movie. What is Ray Bradbury's legacy? Why was his uh, work significant at the time? And why is it still important today? At the very least, 
I think Bradbury's legacy is Fahrenheit 451. It's a dystopian novel which you often see placed alongside Brave New World, 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale. I don't see that changing anytime soon. So even if the rest of Ray's work disappeared for some reason, I think Fahrenheit would stick around. If we're looking at things a bit less tangibly, I think Ray's legacy is in how he helped to shape the fields of imaginative literature by showing us that popular fiction can be poetic, by showing that the boundaries of genre are an illusion, by showing that good storytelling can transcend media. Now, today, there are many writers who operate across media and across genres, but Ray paved the way for them. As for the significance of Ray's work at the time that he was writing, well, I think it was significant because, frankly, two things, it was so damned good and he did it so fast. In career terms, if you look at how his career developed, he was writing for these cheap pulp magazines, but he was writing very fine literature in those magazines, unlike most of the other writers. And between about 1941 and 1953, that's a 12-year window, he had written most of the groundbreaking work of his career. The Dark Carnival stories, The Martian Chronicles, The Illustrated Man, Fahrenheit 451, his early award-winning stories, all within this decade or just over a decade. Now that's not to say that his career disappeared after that point, but what is important is that he did all of this very quickly and then had a very long tail to the rest of his career. There's a burning fire there around 1950 to 1953 in particular, where Bradbury is dominating the fields that he works in. I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't see it happening. But when you look back at the magazine appearances, at the frequency with which his books were released, that was an amazing, rapid time for anyone to be writing. And in that short burst of time, he slipped from horror stories to science fiction, to fantasy, to mainstream. And in so doing, he showed how permeable all the barriers to writing are. You know, people thought that, well, there's this genre here, there's that genre there, and then there's that other thing over there. Bradbury showed if you are a good writer, you can just pass through all of those barriers. He was one of the first of the science fiction writers to appear in hardcover from a major publisher. He was one of the first pulp writers to break out into the so-called slick magazines. So he led where others would follow. And then when it comes to the question of why his work is important today, well, I think it's because he pioneered so many things and influenced so many people. If you're looking for the perfect example of a short story, or should I say an example of a perfect short story, 
Look at his earliest short stories collected in Dark Carnival. Now, Dark Carnival is a book which is out of print right now, but it's being republished next year. So everyone will get to see those original stories. Most of them were rewritten later on for the October country, but Dark Carnival uh, is where the stories originally appeared, and often they're better versions. The earlier, raw version of the story is often better. Take an example story, I would say The Crowd. I just happen to think that's either a perfect short story or very near to perfection. Read a story like that and tell me if you don't see Stephen King foreshadowed in that story's tone, its structure, its pace. And when I say Stephen King, I'm using that as shorthand, because not only will you see Stephen King foreshadowed, you will see any number of lesser writers foreshadowed in that story. Now, I'm not saying they've all read that story and it's influenced them directly, but the thing is that Bradbury wrote so much of quality that if each story has influenced just one writer, there will be hundreds of writers who have been influenced by Bradbury in total. Stephen King himself has said, without Ray Bradbury, there is no Stephen King. And to that I would add, without Stephen King, there is no modern horror. And you can extrapolate this idea to other areas of fantasy, science fiction, film, television. Bradbury has had a direct influence on practitioners of those arts for decades. At the same time, I think Bradbury is an important bridge between today's imaginative literature and the writers who predated him. So, for example, again, The Crowd, that story, is clearly influenced to some degree by Edgar Allan Poe. The Martian Chronicles is clearly inspired by Edgar Rice Burroughs. The point is that there's a long chain linking the early literature of the fantastic to the present-day equivalents. At the very least, Bradbury is a highly significant link in that chain, and I would say at the very most, he is the writer who brought those earlier forms into our modern world. So, some absolutely magnificent questions there. It may sound as if I've just spontaneously given you the answers there, but actually I'm working from notes here. I did have to spend quite a bit of time thinking about many of these questions, and in some cases doing some research because I didn't know the answers to the questions. So my thanks to everybody who contributed a question here. If you go to the Science Fiction Book Club group on Facebook, you'll be able to see the written versions of the answers, which might be uh, a bit more concise than what I've been doing in this podcast version today. You'll also see the names of all the people who contributed questions. But thanks to everyone involved. And I hope you, as a listener, have enjoyed this episode of Bradbury 100. And I think maybe we should do this again in the future. So anyway, thanks for listening. Because this is the end of 2023 at the time of recording, I feel obliged to say season's greetings. Season's greetings from Bradbury 100. And I'll see you 
early next year, 2024, as we continue our journey through the works and life of Ray Bradbury. Many thanks. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk. Thank you.